0: Hi, and welcome to Edge with Dr. Stephen Brown. This podcast series focuses on the story, the personal narrative of Australians who have pushed at the edge. They have been pioneers who are doing amazing things that are a little bit different to the everyday. Sometimes their stories are told and well celebrated, and sometimes these stories are reasonably well hidden. Dr. Stephen Brown is a highly regarded leader in the education sector both in Australia and internationally. He is the Managing Director of the Brown Collective and has a strong interest in people and getting to know their stories. He has developed this podcast series to introduce you to some of Australia's finest citizens.
1: Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of EDGE. From being a priest to the CEO and boardrooms of Australia, from... Beginnings in New Zealand to mixing with some of the starlets of Hollywood and managing directors of uh, those global brands such as Warner Brothers. Finding uh, himself going through desert years in the spirit of Joseph Campbell, emerging as one of the leading figures in Australia in social policy for a number of decades. Awarded an Order of Australia. It's my great pleasure to introduce a great friend and a great Australian, Patrick McClure. Welcome, Patrick. Lovely to be with you. Patrick, how would you describe yourself? Um, Others have described you. I've tried to sum up Patrick McClure, but I don't think I've done a good job. But tell me about you, Patrick.
2: Really, from an early age, I've tried to live a committed life. And um, I guess what I've been committed to is, is the common good, uh, principles of social justice, and uh, the journey you know certainly began in in, in childhood um, with a Catholic upbringing with large family and then my time, as we'll talk about later in the in the Franciscans, was very formative for me. I call it my years in the desert It was very challenging, uh, but it was also a time where I was also able to uh, develop a social conscience and that Franciscan spirit of care for the outsider, care for the environment, has stayed with me all my life, um, and it led on to uh, you know positions that I was able to hold as CEO of Mission Australia and uh, CEO of Vinny's, and also uh, addressing some of the the, the toughest um, social policy challenges in Australia, like the income support system, 150 billion dollars of government outlays, and. Um, trying to reform it, to simplify it, to uh, enable it to uh, provide pathways for people into uh, education and training and jobs. But I guess certainly um, having left the priesthood, I've tried to live life to the full because um, I like that saying, um, the glory of God is man fully alive. And Joseph Campbell, who's um, yeah, just one of the, the, the people I look to because I, I believe he has a lot of wisdom. He talks of the hero's journey and that each of us, the challenge is to be the hero in our own life journey and to find our bliss. And uh, that's the challenge. It's not that finding your bliss is easy because uh, at times it can very much test you as it's done with me, but mine has been working in the social purpose sector and um, seeking just to uh, address issues of inequality. So, that certainly has been a major part of my life, but uh, I've been fortunate to. Uh, I try to be a loving father. I have two uh, beautiful children, and um, I try to be a, a good partner. And um, I also love adventure. So, we've had some wonderful trips overseas, and we particularly love Africa and uh, Rwanda, the mountain gorillas there, but just these beautiful endangered species, um, whether it's elephants or Uh, lions, lionesses, cheetahs, I mean that's just beautiful to see them in their setting and I also uh, I need to exercise (laughs) as we're getting older and so uh, the uh, round of golf quite regularly and uh, the male friends that I have for that all together makes for a good life.
1: You often say it gives me great mirth um, you know your uh, Wednesdays used to be a holy day of obligation but you've seemed to have moved that across multiple days of the week. So that's how you combine your Catholic upbringing and formation, I think, to exercise. I really like that, uh, Patrick. Fantastic. Look, take me back to Patrick, 17, the only boy growing up in a Catholic family in New Zealand and um, then finding a way to your calling the priesthood, which in some ways is, um, wasn't that easy because it meant leaving something behind. Do you want to take us to that story? Yes, well, I
2: I had a very happy childhood, Stephen. Um, I grew up initially in New Zealand. Uh, I had a family of seven children, six sisters, and so in a sense, I suppose I was spoiled. I wish I'd had a brother. It might have taken the pressure off me a little bit. But, uh, um, you know, I I was just a regular little boy, loved sport, had a few mates, loved my bike, and... Loved the freedom of, of growing up uh, in Auckland, which was, um, yeah, just a wonderful environment. And going trout fishing with my dad down in Lake Taupo. and um, But uh, from an early age, um, I, I think dad really wanted me to be a priest. And uh, there was quite a bit of pressure in those days, you know, from schools and from the church, you know, for each family to produce a, a priest. So I think I was sort of the, uh, I, I see myself sometimes a bit as the sacrificial offering. And I was a good boy. I was an altar boy. I um, was a very dutiful son and and then later when I was 14, dad had a business transfer with Warner Brothers and um, came to Australia. So we lived in Sydney and um, he was very keen for me to be that priest. And even though I was very successful at school, I, I mean, I enjoyed oratory and debating and I was okay academically and loved a bit of rugby and enjoyed the company of of, uh, young girls. Often it was wishful thinking, but I certainly enjoyed socializing. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: But,
2: um, oh, I don't know, the the die was cast, Um, the script had been written, Uh, I was to be a priest, and uh, really against my intuition, I I went into the priesthood. And I had um, 10 years with the Franciscans and um, it was just a tough, tough time. psychologically, emotionally. Uh, it was a time of change within the Catholic Church. While I was there over a hundred priests and seminarians left the uh, the Franciscans and I felt very alone, but I was very committed and it was during that time that um, on a weekend I used to go and work with Mother Teresa's nuns in Fitzroy and Melbourne because I was training in Melbourne and um, I started developing a social conscience and, um, and that that sort of very much sustained me. Um, but um, over time, even though I was ordained a priest, I just found that I didn't really agree with some of the teachings of the church. And also, um, I just found it too lonely, uh, the, the life of a priest. And along with probably uh, hundreds of thousands of others that left you know, from across the world, um, I decided to resign the ministry.
1: I um, remember when I first connected with you and for obvious reasons didn't uh, because you didn't know I was in that room. Um, it was 2004 or something like that where you spoke to a gathering. I was in a leadership program and in walked this um, angular figure and started to rate around all things in terms of social policy. And you spoke about... Uh, the desert years and that stayed with me until today and um, in about 2016 I went on a search to find you Patrick because you made such an incredible difference to my life and uh, with that sort of expression and connection it was almost like you were speaking to me alone in the room so that's a special gift. I'm just thinking in terms of your, your own is there one sort of incident? Is it the ten years with the Franciscans? Was was the defining part of your life? Certainly, that was. Um, if
2: you look at Joseph Campbell's notion of the hero's journey, there's always the time of testing um, that um, you're confronted with um, your own internal demons, but also external ones, and there's, you know, the, the, there's the opportunity to just to uh, refuse the call. But uh, that can also lead to uh, various forms of mental illness and depression. So in a sense, there's this inner call within us that, uh, to achieve our bliss. And uh, it's actually in fulfilling of that that, that, that we find our, our meaning. And that, that's what I believe. And that's sort of the trajectory of my life. So certainly that um, Franciscan experience um, was part of that. I mean, it was a very tough life. We took vows of poverty. Of chastity and obedience. And um, I mean, it's really the opposite of how most people would consider a a happy life. So that was very challenging. But I also um, was very fortunate that a friend of my father's was a Jesuit priest, a man called Marian Ganey. And I went and spent time with him when I was in the seminary in Fiji. Uh, He was a a pioneer of credit unions. He uh, assisted the indigenous people to uh, develop credit unions and, and had over 300 of them throughout the South Pacific. But when I saw what he was doing and how he empowered these people and how he took them from being very dependent people and uh, people that were in debt to loan sharks and enabled them to, uh, to save, to uh, uh, provide funds for their educa- the education of their children, to be able to buy their fishing nets and how it empowered the, that themselves as individuals, but also as a community, that really inspired me. And so in my life, I've really been about building capacity in individuals and in communities, and in families, because um, when you're able to do that, that's when people are able to flourish. And um, it's been really a theme of of my life. And it's very much linked with, um, you know, the call of Jesus, you know, sort of in in, in the temple when at the beginning of his ministry, when he said, I've come to bring good news to the poor, to um, free those that are enslaved and give sight to the blind and and also the spirit of the Beatitudes, uh, happy those who hunger and thirst for justice. And uh, um, that empowerment of people, it's, um, I think, very significant um, in terms of changing lives.
1: So Patrick, chronologically, 10 years of the Franciscans, you decided to leave. I love the way you do it better than I, but... You... I was all set up for my future. I had a suitcase in Perth and I had, I think you said, a diploma of theology and pastoral studies. You were set up for the outside world,
2: weren't you? Uh, well, I mean, uh, not, as, uh, as my children would say to me, because, um, yeah, there I was. I, so I resigned the ministry and they kindly gave me $400. I suppose that was my superannuation after 10 years. I don't <laughs> know what I was meant to do with $400. And I was unemployed. I couldn't get a job. I mean, I had a um, degrees in theology and in the scriptures, but no one wanted to employ me. The only ones that would were um, the Sisters of St. John of God, where I became for 12 months a theatre orderly working in the um, St. John of God hospital. And uh, I remember speaking at a Catholic health conference um, many, many years later when I was CEO of Mission Australia. And I said, is there anyone here from... Um, St. John of God Hospital in Perth and a number of them put their hands up and I said, look, I've just got to thank you. You you gave me my start. That was my first job. But of course, what did I do? I had to really reconstruct my life. So I went back to university. I I did a four year degree. I went into counselling because I was a bit of a mess. I mean, psychologically you are because I went in at 18 and I came out at 28, but I was still like an 18 year old. So I'd, I'd never had a job. I'd, I'd never opened a bank account. I'd never had a mortgage. I'd never lived in a relationship. I hadn't socialised particularly with females. I mean, it was um, sort of I had to rediscover, you know, who Patrick was, and um, and that was hard work, you know, and 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 working through a lot of those issues was was quite tough. But I felt if I didn't do those hard yards, I I, I wouldn't be happy, and I certainly wouldn't be able to be a good partner and uh, a good father. And I I think that's one of the issues, if I might digress a bit, with the whole um, uh, Royal Commission into sexual abuse of, of children, where, it, you know, there were 5000 allegations made against Catholic priests, and many of them were for abusing children that were underage. And when you think that a lot of these uh, men would have gone into religious life or the priesthood at probably 14 or 15, they might have been 40 or 50, but the children that they were, you know, interfering with and molesting were, you know, 14, 15 and even younger and and therein lies the problem that um, a lot of priests and even bishops that their um, psychological development has been arrested because they haven't been through the normal milestones that a person does to mature into a full human being and therein lies the challenge of putting them in seminaries and, um, you know, not being open to the community, not mixing with females and not developing the the normal milestones of a young man that help you to become a man.
1: Yeah, that was profound. When I first heard you speak about that, um, you know, a lot of priests uh, go through that process and that natural formation that uh, males um, and females indeed go through. The the trials and tribulations, experience, life experiences of formation weren't had or or stopped. um, Yes. So tell me from the orderly in Perth, we're armed with uh, newfound degrees and uh, into counselling, does this Leviathan figure come through in terms of policy in Australia, uh, an Order of Australia chairing um, review uh, for welfare reform for the then uh, minister, uh, current Prime Minister Scott Morrison? So take us on that journey? Yes, well, um, well, it was very
2: challenging. I always felt like I was 10 years behind my peers, because I I sort of had to reinvent myself. So I got my degree. And then I became voluntary uh, chairman of an organisation called Second Harvest. And it basically was a cooperative um, model providing low cost food to people on limited income. And it was very successful. And I raised something like $500,000 in grants and government funding for the organisation. We had warehouses and trucks and, and I won a Churchill Fellowship to study social enterprises in the USA, Canada and the UK. I was also working at Department of um, Social Services at that stage um, and um, I was able to progress up through the ranks there and started to you know, de- develop good understanding of leadership but also of developing strategic planning and uh, managing people. So I was trying to accumulate as much knowledge as I could. And then um, I was in in Sydney and um, Robert Fitzgerald was the president of Vinny's in New South Wales. And I met him and we had a discussion and he was looking for a CEO of Vinny's. And uh, I applied and was successful. And so that started me off in leadership positions. And Vinny's is a great organization that really gave me an insight into homelessness, because we were looking at innovative approaches to homelessness. But also, uh, there was the drought. And um, we distributed um, $10, $10 million uh, in drought assistance. And so I traveled right through New South Wales and started to see that the harshness of of life in, in, on the land, and particularly for families. And um, it, it really gave me an insight into uh, how people in the regions um, face challenges that we in the city don't. And from there, uh, I was really headhunted to uh, run Mission Australia. And uh, it was during the, the Howard years that, ha- that happened and um, Howard was privatizing employment services. And uh, Mission Australia was very good at, at getting people into jobs and training. We had a lot of experience. And of course, we we're a Christian organization. We we're able to bring all of those values to bear. And so, um, Uh, we won um, a government contract, and of course that transformed the organisation, so we grew from very much over the the 10 years I was there, we grew from a very small um, state-based Sydney City Mission into Mission Australia with uh, a budget of 300 million, 3,000 staff, uh, providing employment, training, housing, youth and family services across the nation, it was massive. And um, I caught the attention of the Prime Minister at the time, John Howard, and um, he liked me and he liked what we were doing. And um, he um, uh, asked me to chair the reference group on welfare reform, which was became a great success in terms of uh, politically, it was accepted by all parties. And uh, also by the community. I, I did a lot of media uh, of course, on the launch of it. And um, the government committed uh, $1.5 billion to it over four years. So that certainly got me started. And I was involved in a lot of social innovation with Mission Australia. We did work in indigenous communities with Noel Pearson up in Cape York, setting up social enterprises. And uh, it was just an exciting time of of my life. And um, the OECD also uh, asked me to chair a a forum on innovation. And of course, that exposed me to, you know, Europe and the UK and the US and what was happening there. And I was able to uh, contribute to the conversation. And so it really just evolved that way. And um, I was very lucky, you know, the um, I've been recognised for my work winning the Officer of the Order of Australia and uh, various other um, awards. And um, uh, it's just been, been very satisfying, um, that experience of seeking to build the common good of working in the social purpose sector and going back to those tours of um, uh, building capacity in
1: individuals and communities. Many conversations we have and I thoroughly enjoy it Uh, all the time. uh, We go in all sorts of directions. We talk about all sorts of topics but what Uh, to share around your notions of leadership in the work and your journey that you've just taken us on from priest to CEO, which is your wonderful book. Um, In that uh, reform of organisations, you had me smiling one day when you looked at early days of mission in Australia, where people were offering prayers for a better budget. Bottom line, well, And you took a look and said, no amount of praying is going to change this bottom line. But in terms of uh, leading organisations in transformation and change, you had to make some quite uh, tough decisions or appropriate decisions that perhaps weren't the most popular, but they were the right decisions. So what's your advice uh, for leaders, what do leaders need to display? Any reaction to that? Yes, certainly. I, I think an
2: important one is your own integrity, and not integrity in the wider sense—that you are, you know, a whole person. You know, you, um, you you seek to be your best self, and that that integrity I think is very important. And also that you have a north star. Uh, that the north star being a, a ethical decision making—that you know you have an ethical base, the dignity of the human person—that you will do more good than harm in the decisions that you make that um, you'll go back to principles in terms of the way that you interact with people. That doesn't mean, on the other hand, though, that you don't make hard decisions. Because if you're about change, you do. I mean, what I always felt you needed to be was very fair. And I was always fair with people. But I did say I had expectations. There were KPIs that needed to be met. And if they weren't met, I would say to them, as you do, um, look, this isn't working out. And uh, look, we'll give you every opportunity. But if, it, if you're not performing, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to part ways. And those were always hard conversations. And I think what leaders need a lot is IQ is very important. That's the intelligence. You need a you know a seven or an eight out of ten in terms of intelligence. But you also need a seven or an eight out of ten in in emotional intelligence. And as you know, Stephen, emotional intelligence is understanding people understanding how do you bring the best out of them understanding is this the right place for this individual to be working or actually should we part company and is it really better for them as well as for us and it's also that ability to you know read the room and and read the executive team and and be much more sort of um, intuitive and inclusive in the way you interact with people i think also as a leader you've got to take calculated risks i mean it was a big risk for mission australia when we went from this charity where we were, um, you know, praying every uh, June that the funds would come through from some um, uh, mythical uh, donor (laughs) to meet budget to uh, actually, um, you know, running government contracts that were $150 million, maintaining our Christian values, having chaplains in the organisation to serve staff and clients, but also being very efficient and uh, getting the outcomes that those contracts uh, required and so it was a big risk, but it was a calculated risk because we'd done our um, done our financials to know that the Ford forecast that um, we would make money from the uh, the contracts, which we did. And the other thing about a, a, a leader too is you've got to be able to communicate a vision and take people with you on the journey. So every six months, I, I would go out and spend a week, two weeks, right across the organisation and all the different regions, talking to all the staff and forums. About our strategic plan, which is always a three-year plan, and what we'd what we'd achieved, what we hadn't achieved, and asking for questions and telling people there were no career-limiting questions, and so I got thrown a few uh, tough ones, but it was actually good because it actually told me where the problems in the organisation were. And I think as a leader too, you get out and visit the troops and see them, you know, visit the, the staff, and you get inspiration from that because the work they do and um, Mission Australia is outstanding, you know, the, the, the community heroes, a lot of the frontline staff, but also hear their concerns. So that's important. And then the final quality, I'd say, is resilience. And it's a little bit like, you know, surviving those 10 years in the desert, as I call them for for me as a Franciscan, that was the toughest experience of my life. But it gave me a resilience and a spirituality that um, enabled you to go through the dark times, because we all have them. And um um, some people just can't bear it, and that's where you have the increasing numbers of suicide and mental illness and depression and anxiety. So you've got to have build that resilience in you, and um, and realise too that if if you want to be loved, look, I'd have probably been better to have stayed as a priest. At least most of the people in the parish would have loved me. But when you're a leader, you know, I mean, thirty percent of the staff are going to love you and love what you do, because they like change, and it's probably benefiting them, 30% aren't going to like you, because it's not really what they want. And it's probably adversely affecting them. And then there's 30% that don't really care, you know, They okay, well, this is what it is. So you've just got to have that self belief. So those are some of the thoughts I've got a bit about about leadership.
1: Very powerful, um, Patrick, and you continue to demonstrate that you're uh the Director or um, Chair of Kincare Group, and uh, obviously you continue to be involved in the aged care sector. I think you finished a recent review of Australian charities and not-for-profits yeah. and, and delivered that. And yeah. Certainly uh, you are a member or a member of the New South Wales Government Social Impact Investment Expert Advisory Group. So you continue to demonstrate and give your um, leadership capabilities yeah. beyond... And I love that. Um,
2: But it's a bit different now, like uh, at my age, it's really about um, maintaining your health and your well being. I think that's extremely important. And for the first time, I feel like I've got work life balance. I've taken a lot of the stress out of my life. And I think as we get older, um, and CEOs always have a shelf life and, you know, once you've hit 55 to 60, that's, that's about it in Australia. A bit different in America where you can be 78 and still president, but uh, I don't think that's the case in Australia. So maintaining your health and well-being, and that's where the exercise, the golf and my male friends help. I also enjoy writing. Uh, I'm writing a book at the moment. It's sort of a, a COVID project based on my experiences and what I've learned and about some of the exciting areas that I've been involved in with social innovation and um uh, certainly governance and uh, and other issues. And also, um, we enjoy traveling. And, and I think keeping an open mind, seeing other cultures just keeps you young. And uh, and coupling that with using your intellect through being able to teach and mentor people and particularly mentoring my two children and um, acting on boards uh, keeps you intellectually uh, stimulated as well.
1: Patrick, on that score, um, somebody who... Uh... Always is active in all those various things you just described. Um, what's next for Patrick McClure? What do you want to achieve next? And well, um,
2: I've just heard uh, recently that my daughter is um, pregnant. So, uh, wow! My grandfather is obviously. Yeah. Oh, congratulations! And, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm very excited. So that'll be the next step, which I'm I'm loving. I, I would I would love that just and. Uh, Uh, that. And certainly my children are very important. And fortunately, they seem to enjoy my company. It's probably because I pay for the lunches. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we, uh, we talk a lot, and I try and mentor them as best I can. I love that. Um, The board work really interests me, because I think there's quite a crisis, Stephen, in boards and board governance. Um, What I'm seeing across Australia is like the old boys network just doesn't seem to be working. And we're seeing that, you know, with so many different boards, whether it's, you know, uh, the experience of Westpac or, you know, the banks and these Royal Commissions, you're seeing it in the church with the Royal Commissions, you're seeing it uh, also um, uh, with the casinos in Melbourne and, um, and Sydney. And it's very interesting. I, I'm on, on two boards. And the question I often ask, and I, I use that as a base for myself, is in whose interest are we acting? And I think what happened when you looked at those royal commissions, the banks weren't acting in the interests of their customers necessarily. The church wasn't acting in the interests of vulnerable young people, and certainly um, the casinos and uh, you know, left a lot to be desired in terms of um, you know the issues of money laundering and um, criminal activities that that were ha- happening on their premises, and so. It goes back to that in whose interest are you acting, Um, an ethical framework, good risk management, I think all of those things uh, are very important and I think also boards uh, to flourish need to have a mix of people on them. I I think you know there needs to be uh, you know sort of a gender mix Uh, But there needs to be, I think, as happens with the superannuation funds, there needs to be union people as well as business people. And I think that diversity, as long as the skill set goes with it, um, makes for much more better decision making.
1: Outstanding, Patrick. Finally, I just want to thank you uh, on behalf of so many uh, for your lifetime of achievement and your contribution to the common good. Uh, You exemplify that. I'm delighted that um, you are one of my friends and uh, friends to many because your work in terms of reform and social policy, your contribution to your own family and your own progression through the good times and the better times through the desert to uh, some fertile places. So I thank you, Patrick, for participating in this podcast, Edge. You're an outstanding Australian and uh, thank you again for that contribution.
2: Thank you, Stephen. I love our friendship and uh, let's hope I'm up in Brisbane or you're in Sydney soon.
0: Thank you for joining us today. You can follow Dr. Stephen Brown on LinkedIn and Twitter on at Dr. Stephen Brown one Please join us next time for another episode of EDGE.